Anyway, here we are for uh, part four of a series on why was I born. Uh, we've been uh, going through this series for the last few weeks. To understand, you know, why, why did God create us? Why was I born? What is there a purpose to my life? Is there a reason for my life? You know, as we, see, as we enter into 2019, I thought it'd be good for us to go back and to ask this simple question, why was I born? It's kind of a good way to start the year to kind of really seek God and remember again that God does have a purpose for me, that my life isn't random, but that he created me with a specific purpose in mind. As we talked a couple weeks ago about King Solomon, we know that our purpose in life is far greater than our personal fulfillment in achieving our own personal goals. See, the core of our uh, being and the core of why we create is simple, that God created us for a specific reason. And one of the reasons that God created us is because he wanted to show his love to us. And that God desired that he showed his love to us, it would transform our life. That would begin the journey of setting us free and then also setting us up to do the plans that he accomplished for us to do. See, the simple truth is that long before the God created the world, he had us in mind. That he had us in mind with a plan and a purpose and a reason. That none of us are here today because of we're a mistake. None of us are here today because we were in an accident. It doesn't really matter. The circumstances that surround your birth, God created you for a reason. If you're alive today, which I guess we all are alive here today, it's because God has a reason for us. And so I want to talk about that today. I want to talk about the plans that God has for us, the purpose that God has created for each of us. For some of us, it's just a good reminder to remind ourselves that God created us for a reason and to pursue the reasons that he created us. You know, so often we just get caught up in, 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 this, in this world, this American culture that thinks the world revolves around us and our needs and our desires. Marketing is constantly dominating us every minute of the day, saying this is what you need. This is what will make your life happier. And then Paul says, no, 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 that's not what it's all about. We look in Ephesians 1 verse 4, and I love the scripture. Paul says, even before God made the world, God loved us and he chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. See, that was God's plan for us, that he had planned before the world began. And he's going to accomplish that. God has a vested interest in seeing the plans for our life accomplished. See, King David is so confident that God is going to accomplish his will in our life that King David says in Psalm 138, verse 8, the Lord will fulfill his purposes for me. You know, it's easy for us to, to read these scriptures, talking about God's will, to get excited about God's will, but then quickly enter into this zone of get a little panicky. Well, how do I know I'm really going to complete God's will? Well, I really do God's will. And a lot of people, we talk about searching for God's will and saying we're, we're questioning what is God's will for my life and we're, we're trying to find God's will in our life. And while that's noble, it's a good exercise to seek God's will for our life, I think sometimes seeking God's will can almost be a little bit of a distraction because sometimes we lose the confidence that God's the one who's directing our lives. I love this quote by David Platt. Some of you have been here a while, you know I like to quote David Platt. I want to read this to you because I think it's a brilliant quote that really kind of talks about you know, the power of God to accomplish the things in our life. What if God's will was never intended to be found? What if God isn't hiding it from us? What if we are not on some cosmic Easter egg hunt where God is saying, you're getting warmer, you're getting warmer, or you're getting colder, or you're getting colder? What if God actually wants us to know and understand his will more than we even want to know and understand his will? What if the whole notion of trying to find God's will is more pagan than it is Christian? 
You do not need to try and find God's will for your life because God's will is not lost. There's a much better way to accomplish God's will. As we walk with God, He directs the details of our lives for the accomplishment of His will and the spread of His worship in the world. That's what I want us to go away today with this confidence in this faith and in this trust in God that He has a plan for my life. But as I walk with God, He's going to make sure that it happens. I don't have to go searching for His will like it's some big mystery in my life. But we can have the confidence to know that God wants us to accomplish His will. See, it's a real struggle for us not to think that life is all about me. It's a real struggle for us because we constantly think that I need to make sure that my own fulfillment is reached, is only satisfied. See, in Ephesians, Paul reminds us too that we are Jesus' workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. I think sometimes we don't really understand the seriousness of what Paul is saying. See, Paul is saying that you were created to do something that no one else could do. That when you were created, God had a plan for something that you could do. But see, the enemy comes into our life and he likes to lie to us. He tells us we're not good enough to accomplish God's plan. He says we're not good enough. We don't know enough. We're not skilled enough. We're not obedient enough. And the enemy bombards us with these thoughts and this idea that I'll never amount to anything. Why should he even try to do God's will? I'm not good enough. You know, after a while, we kind of believe him. We kind of believe the enemy and say, well, maybe I'm not that good. Maybe I can't do it. So we kind of give up. We kind of lack a little courage. But see, you know, the truth is, if God has called you to do something, that means no one else can do it. Nobody else can do what you're called to do. And I think sometimes we just need to stop that comparison. That whole idea that maybe somebody else can do it better. Well, that person's not called to do what you're called to do. I want us to have that confidence to know God has called us to do something and only you can do it. And we need to stop comparing ourselves to someone else. You know, the good thing about if God's called you to do it, you're not going to come in second place. You're not competing against somebody else to do the same thing. God's called you to do it. So we don't have to worry and fear. I like the promise that God gave to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God is encouraging Jeremiah about the plans that he has for him. He's given Jeremiah a pretty difficult task to speak to the Israelites. It's going to take a lot of courage for Jeremiah to get the strength to speak to the Israelites. He's a little nervous about it. He's a little intimidated. I don't know if I want to do that. And so God says to Jeremiah, he says, Jeremiah, do you know what? Before you were in your mother's womb, I chose you. Before you're born, before you're born, I set you apart for a special work. See, God says to Jeremiah, you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about what I called you to do because I created you to do it. I've given you every single thing that you need to do. So you might look at that and say, well, that, that's kind of Old Testament. You know, the same thing is in the New Testament. In 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, he said, it is, not he, it is he who saved us and chose us for his holy work. Not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan long before the world began. To show his love and kindness to us through Christ. See, all these scriptures that we've been reading this morning <clears throat> is why we as a community value human life why we as a community value that birth begins at conception. 
So we value life because God is directly involved in all human life. Nobody is born, that is a mistake. Nobody's created, that is a mistake. And that's why we value human life. To say that a child can be aborted is to basically say that God made a mistake. That there's no value for that human life. So I think it's a little overwhelming as a church and as a society and a community to look at the events that happened this week in New York and to see this, the, uh, the change in our culture where abortion is just celebrated. And as a church, we, uh, we want to make a firm commitment to letting people know that as a church, we do value all life, human life, in the womb, any life. And so as a church, we want to be known for a church that values human life. But I think it's more important as a church that we are known as a church that values anybody that participated in abortion. That it's not our role as a church to judge and to condemn. It's our job to love. And to encourage and comfort and speak words of hope. Because we know that Abortion, participating in abortion is no different than any other sin. That Jesus came to die for that sin as well. And that there's forgiveness from abortion. So we want to make it clear as a church that we never condemn anybody who's participated in abortion. But that as our church, we show love and compassion. And anybody who's had an abortion, we know that God forgives and restores. And I know that some people that participate in abortion, it's, it's, even though they've repented, Sometimes there's guilt that goes with it. And our prayer as a church and leadership is that in this year, maybe you'd find some freedom. Some from freedom from your past. All of us want freedom from our past and our past mistakes. Abortion's no different. So we don't want to elevate abortion as a bigger sin in this church. Sin is sin, and Jesus came to die for our sins. So that's the good news of Jesus. But you know, it's often it's hard to f- believe that Jesus really did come and die for our sins, that we could be forgiven. Sometimes it's hard to believe the power of what Jesus did on the cross. See, often we believe in Jesus, we believe in the cross, but sometimes down the road we think that our good works and our good behavior sometimes is what saved us. We kind of get that mixed up. Instead, the truth is, we were saved to do good services. That that's the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that when we find salvation in Jesus, it launches us into understanding why God created us. It launches us into understanding our destiny. And once we understand our destiny, once we understand the things that God has called us to do, we start to live a life of significance. And that's why we really, it's important for us as a church and a community to press into what has God called us to do. Because when we understand the reason that God restored us, then we start understanding our destiny. We understand the significance of what our life is all about. Today I want to talk about a man in the Bible that we know very little about. He's only mentioned in a few short verses. He comes on center stage in the Gospels right after the death of Jesus and soon after Jesus is buried. We don't hear about him again. Even though we have only a few verses about this man, his impact on the world is extremely significant. 
I want to read the, in, in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John the little bit we know about this man named Joseph of Arimathea. Matthew gives us a few details. It says, and this is talking about after Jesus had died on the cross. It says, That evening after Jesus died on the cross, Joseph, a rich man from Arimathea, who had become a follower of Jesus, went to Pilate. Pilate was the governor in the territory. And asked for Jesus' body. And Pilate issued an order to release him. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a long sheet of clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb, which had been carved out of the rock. Then he rolled a great stone across the entrance and left. And then in John, John records this, uh, about the same story, but he gives us a little bit more detail, so I want to read that. It says, Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. So the big question of the day is, you know, what would happen to Jesus' body after he died on the cross? See, as many of you know that Jesus was tried and he was falsely accused of being a criminal and as a criminal he hung on a cross for his penalty for his sins. We all know that Jesus was innocent, but the people of the day wanted him killed and destroyed, so he hung, up on, he hung on a cross and died. So the question is, what would happen to his body after he died? There's basically three options. The Roman government typically like to leave a body on a cross and let it serve as a reminder to everybody that if you do what this guy did, you'll be next. So it's kind of a deterrent. They would keep the person hung on the cross and they would just let the body decompose on the cross. Or sometimes they might just knock the cross over on the ground and then the animals would come by and take care of the body or they would take the body and put it in a shallow grave to just get rid of it. Those were typically the three different options that would happen if you were crucified on the cross. But there was one other option. It was another option, but it was a very, very risky option. And that is the family or friends could come before the proper authorities and request to have the body and to take the body home and do a proper burial. But nobody's going to do that. That's a pretty risky thing to do because if you went and claimed the body of a criminal, you could be maybe falsely accused or maybe there's some guilt by association. They might think, well, if you want this man's body, you must think he is a good guy or you must think that his message that he's been sharing is actually truthful. Or maybe you're actually one of his followers. So nobody's going to want to ask for his body because that puts your life at a big risk. They might say, okay, if you're a follower of this guy, you know what, we're going to put a cross up and you're going to be next. Because apparently you didn't learn your lesson. We're trying to get rid of these people that are following Jesus. We're not trying to encourage it. So this man... Joseph, Arimathea, he's the one that comes forward. Now, you would expect it would be one of Jesus' 12 disciples. You'd ex well, I guess 11 at this time. That would be one of his 11 disciples would come forward and say, you know, I'll, I'll take the body, I'll claim it. But the scripture is pretty clear that Jesus' disciples were not around after he died on the cross. We don't have a lot of details of what happened, but we know that a lot of them were pretty discouraged. They had been following Jesus for two, three years, and all these claims that Jesus made that he was the coming Messiah and that he was going to be the savior of the world and suddenly this man is tried as a criminal and he hangs on a cross and he dies. Suddenly everything that you hope for, everything that you thought, is just vanishing in front of your eyes. So there's a pretty good chance that his disciples were pretty discouraged and that's why they left. They probably didn't stick around because they might have been afraid that they might be the next one on the cross. 
See, not only did they hang Jesus on a cross to kill him, but they also mocked him. They spent a couple days mocking him and mocking the claims that he made. And these disciples pretty much knew that they were next if they let it be known to everybody that they wanted his body because that would be admitting that they were followers of Jesus. So probably the best strategy for them is probably to be a little bit quiet. You know, what's interesting about the disciples is that they were kind of scared to come forward. They were a little distraught over what had happened. But the truth is, everything that had happened to Jesus, they knew about. Jesus had told them about these things in advance. They were told in advance that Jesus would die and that he would raise, he'd rise again from the dead. But they didn't really believe it was true. It never really sank in. And I think we as a people kind of have a similar problem even in 2019. We read the Bible. We know it's true. We acknowledge it's true. But sometimes it doesn't really sink in. Sometimes it really doesn't sink in that what is written in the Bible about us is actually true. See, I don't think our biggest problem as an individual is fear or anxiety, or doubt, or discouragement, or maybe addiction, or maybe some sexual brokenness. I don't think these kind of issues are our biggest problem. See, I think our biggest challenge is actually believing that everything written in the Bible about you and me is true. That everything written in the Bible about us is true, and it will come to pass. I think sometimes we have a hard time really assimilating that what Jesus says he wants to do in my life is really true. We might think it's for maybe somebody else. Maybe for somebody else it's true, but probably not for me. I probably have maybe done one or two many things wrong and maybe I'm just kind of disqualified. I think part of finding freedom and experiencing freedom is understanding that what is written in the Bible is true. And God wants it to happen in our life. See, it's interesting in Luke 24, after Jesus died on the cross and he was resurrected from the dead, he went and found his disciples. His disciples were sitting around a room and having a meeting and Jesus appeared to them and he said to his disciples, he says, don't you remember the words I spoke to you before I was killed on a cross? He said, don't you remember? I told you everything that was going to happen. I told you about the prophecies and the law of Moses. I told you about the Psalms and the writing of the prophets. I told you everything. I think the disciples were probably like, I don't really remember. And then in verse 45 of Luke 24, I love this verse. I think it's one of those little gems in the Bible. It says, Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. In a different translation, the Passion Translation, it says, and Jesus supernaturally unlocked their understanding to receive the revelation of scriptures. That's a pretty powerful thing. That suddenly Jesus supernaturally opened the Bible to his disciples. And that's part of our freedom in 2019 is that the scriptures become more alive to us. And the things that are written in the scriptures we're kind of embracing saying, wow, this really is going to happen. This really could happen in my life. See, and then after Jesus unlocked the scripture for him, Jesus went on to say that everything that happened to him was prophesied before it happened. And so after the disciples, after they had the revelation of the meaning of scripture, then Jesus said to him, now you must go to the nations and preach repentance and forgiveness. 
that now that you understand the scriptures, now that you've had more restoration in your life, now that you understand my intent, now it's time for you to go and act. It's time for you to do something with the information. And so since Jesus' very own disciples didn't step forward, this man of Joseph, Arimathea, he's the one who's actually going to step forward and claim his body. See, as I said before, we don't know much about him. We do know that he was rich, that he was a prominent leader, but also he was a secret follower of Jesus. He didn't want many people to know. And by stepping forward that day to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus, he made a very bold, bold move. A bold move, a risky move, but he did it. And some of us wonder, why did he do it? Why was he the one? Why is he the one that stepped forward? What is so special about this guy, Joseph? See, the Bible doesn't give us a direct answer. There's a couple options. Number one, he could have been just as, just, he could have been just as dis discouraged as the disciples, wondering, man, everything I believed, it's over, it's done with, it's not going to happen. He might have been just as discouraged as all the disciples and thought, you know what? Maybe we'll just get the body and just, just let's, let's let it be over. Maybe he was discouraged. Maybe he doubted. There's another option, though, that this man Joseph, we do know he was from the Sanhedrin, so he was a very wise man in the Jewish Bible. He knew the Torah. He knew the prophets. He knew the Psalms. He knew the Scripture well. There is the possibility that maybe he knew the Scripture really well and he read it really well and he thought, okay, this is supposed to happen. And maybe he had the revelation of the Scripture. Maybe he wasn't overwhelmed. We don't really know because the Bible doesn't tell us, so we just kind of wonder about those two options. But I think we can all agree that one of the reasons he did it, the, re the main reason that he risked it all, the main reason that he stepped forward and risked his very own life, and I think this is the best answer, is he did it because he was called to do it before he was born. That's something that God created for him to do. That was an assignment that God had assigned to this man before he was born. This was part of God's plan for this man's life. See, 600 years before Jesus died on the cross, there was a prophecy in the book of Isaiah that's recorded that says, and he, referring to Jesus, had done no wrong, and Jesus had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. See, this prophecy was written 600 years before Jesus died on the cross. There's a lot of prophecies in Scripture about how Jesus' life and death and burial would go. And so this Scripture is out there, and the truth is, if this Scripture wasn't fulfilled, if Jesus wasn't buried in a rich man's grave, if Jesus was just left on the cross to die, then you could discredit the entire Bible. You could say none of it's true because the Scripture wasn't, wasn't fulfilled. See, the reason that Joseph risked it all is simply because the Bible said it would happen. This was God's plan from the beginning. And I don't know how it all happened. I don't know how Joseph got the assignment. I don't know what God did in him to make it all happen. And we don't have to know all these details. All we have to do is have the confidence that God can accomplish what seems impossible to us. See, the promise that God has for our life is really no different than the prophecy in the Bible. If it's written, it's true. And we can rest knowing that it's going to happen. See, one of the reasons that there's so many prophecies in the Bible about how Jesus would die and about his death and his resurrection is to prove to all of us that Jesus really is who he said he would be. 
It's evidence to prove to us that the scripture is really true, that we can have the confidence. So does this mean just because God has a plan for my life, it's just automatically going to happen and there's nothing I have to do? That I can sit back and say, well, if it happens, it happens. Well, see, God's plans for our life is sort of similar to salvation. It all begins with our submission to God. If we live a life of submission to God, if we are seeking his ways, he's going to supernaturally cause things to happen in our life. I want to repeat David Platt's quote, his words, where David said at the end of his quote, and I love this, he says, as we walk with God, that's just the simple key. It's just simply walking with God. He's going to direct the details of our lives for the accomplishment of God's will and the spread of his worship to the world. Sometimes it's not that complicated. God just wants us to just simply walk with him. But Jesus does give us a little insight. In, in Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus is talking to his, his disciples, and he says, Anyone who lets himself be distracted from the work I plan for him is not fit for the kingdom of God. See, this text is clear that we do need to be serious if we want to participate in God's plans for our life. And that we do need to get rid of some of the distractions in our life. And this text is a reminder from Jesus that part of walking in the plans he has for us is identifying what these distractions are and getting rid of them. You know, the distractions, they can be anything from our money, from our job, to our possessions, to our struggles, to fill in the blank. And this is part of finding freedom is God, when God starts identifying any distractions in your life and says, let's deal with those. Let's put those behind us so we can walk in the good plans that God has for us. But see, the bottom line is God is way more concerned about our destiny than we are. The bottom line is God's way more concerned about seeing us fulfill our destiny because he promised us. He promised it. Plus, he created us for a reason. He wants to see that accomplished. So while we don't know a whole lot about Joseph and the gospel writers don't give us a lot of real understanding about him, there are some things that we do know about him that kind of serve as, as kind of goals for us or maybe they serve as um, benchmarks. See, in Mark 15, verse 43, we'll read this part again. It says, Joseph Arimathea, he was a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage and he went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus. See, both Mark and Luke talk about Joseph, that he had an expectation for the kingdom of God, that he was waiting for the kingdom of God. And I think that's part of accomplishing what God has for us, is that we live our life with an expectation, that we're expecting God to move. We're expecting God to do something. And I think part of us to find freedom is just simply asking God to stir in us that expectation that he can do something. He can do something in us. He can do something through us. He can rekindle desires. God can set us free from false expectations and help give us, renew in us the expectation of what God wants to do in our life. But we also know from that passage that Joseph was a courageous man. It's interesting, at one point he was fearful. He didn't want any of his friends to know that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. He didn't want to deal with those consequences. But Joseph was an overcomer. 
He overcame the fear in his life and he allowed God to visit him and to give him courage. See, Joseph needed the courage to walk up those steps and say to Pilate, would you release that body to me? And we also know that Joseph was a generous man. That tomb that he gave to Jesus was very, very expensive. See, he probably bought that tomb and his entire family would be buried in that tomb someday. And he turned it all over. He gave it to Jesus for the accomplishment to fulfill prophecy. So we see that attributes in Joseph that he had an anticipation that God was going to do something. He had courage and also he had generosity. See, the story of Joseph doesn't just show us about these attributes of Joseph, but it also shows us the significance of obeying Jesus and the huge things that were accomplished by Joseph's simple obedience to the plans that God had for his life. I don't think Joseph had any idea that day the significance of what he did and the impact that it would have for eternity. That as believers in Jesus Christ, when we talk about the empty tomb, that's one of the reasons that we can rejoice as believers and have confidence is because we know the resurrection story, that Jesus was raised from the dead. But God used Joseph to put him in the tomb so that he could rise from the dead. I don't think we have any real understanding of the impact that our lives can have on eternity when we are simply just walking with God and letting him direct our steps and accomplishing what he wants to do for us. But we see with Joseph, it all began with a big risk. He had to take a risk. He had to be bold. You know, I think I would hope I would have been that bold 2,000 years ago to do that, but that would be pretty risky. You remember that whole culture at that time wanted Jesus dead. That culture did not want Jesus alive. The statement that Joseph made was very bold. And I think for us as a community, that is something that God is challenging us to be bolder. To be bolder about our faith. To be bolder about expressing our love for Jesus to the world. That we would participate in the God's plans that he has for us. You know, for some people... Baptism is a bold statement. Maybe some of you might want to pray about that. Is God asking you to be baptized as a public declaration of your faith in Jesus to make a statement to the world? Baptism isn't required for salvation, not at all. Baptism is simply an expression of what God has done in your heart. And maybe God wants some of you to do that. But I think we can all take courage in Joseph that he wasn't a perfect man. that he didn't start out as a great man. Remember, he was a very fearful man. He lived in fear. He was part of the Sanhedrin, and he didn't let his friends and his contemporaries know that he was a follower of Jesus. But Jesus did a big work in him. Jesus did a big work in him to give him the courage to do something that many of us look at as impossible. But that's the freedom that God will give to us so we can do the impossible things that he has called us to do. I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and to lead us in a final song. As we just reflect on that, 
the theme of Joseph, are you willing to step forward and to take a risk? Are you willing to step forward and to be bold in your faith? To be bold and to do what God has only called you to do. You know, Joseph didn't just get this confidence on his own. But we know that's a grace gift from God that he gave him the confidence. God has everything that we need to accomplish his purposes. So Father, I do thank you for this morning and I thank you, Lord, for this time to be together. And Father, we thank you for the story of this man, Joseph, and we thank you, Lord, for the work that you did in his life. And Father, I pray that for everyone here, Lord, that you would move in this time that we're together, Lord, to give us an expectation of what you want to do in our life. To give us an expectation of what you want to do in our future. And Lord, that you'd remove from us any false expectations that we have for our future. And Father, I pray that you would give us the confidence to do what we are called to do and what we have been created to do and that we would have the boldness. And Lord, also help us to have the generosity to do it, to be the willing to make sacrifices for your kingdom. We thank you, God, that you are a good God and a faithful God. That, Lord, that you will accomplish the purposes that you have for our life. We just stand on that promise. We declare that over our circumstances, Lord, that you're going to see to it that the purposes in our life are fulfilled. We just stand with confidence today, Lord, knowing that you are good and faithful. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.